This podcast contains content and language not suitable for some listeners. Welcome to Oddities and Curiosities, a podcast about murder, the paranormal, and other oddities sure to pique your curiosity. We are Amanda, and, and we have a little squeaker over and here. And Brittany. <laughs> Poor baby Brit. I got, I got the Rona. <laughs> she got the COVID. Third time's a charm. I guess. I don't know what that means, though. I don't it is you, the charm You that... seem to handle the symptoms better this time. <laughs> She's a champ. I knew what was being thrown at me. <laughs> I was prepared this time. Like she a COVID knew. Girl Scout. She's like, Steven, I need a test. Go, just go get me a just test. Just get me a test. Yep. Yep. So I'm not contagious anymore, according to the chart. I'm okay with it. I've already been exposed to it anyways. I sit right next to you at work. I so know. So there it is. There, yeah, yeah. It is what it is. The show must go on. The show must go on. And for now, we're drinking water. <laughs> yeah. She has um, some stuff in a Target bag, and she will not tell me what it is. It's so a surprise. It's killing me. So first, it's hump day. Hi. Hi. It's <laughs> hump day. <laughs> that was pathetic. <laughs> and it's episode 87. And the topic is Vegas, baby. Yeah, baby. In my best Joey Tribbiani voice. It was good. It um, worked. So <laughs> this hump day, I wanted to do something kind of fun. I like fun. I've kind of dumbed down the fun a little bit because I'm not feeling up to par, but it's still going to be fun. I'm okay with it. So in She's been teasing me all week. It's it's killing me. She had an old fashioned written at the at the top of her case. So I was like, ooh, that's my jam. And then she was like, No, I've changed my mind. I'm gonna do something funner. I had Googled most popular drinks served in Vegas mm-hmm. and an old fashioned was one of them and I knew how much Amanda liked them, so I, I chose that. And then I had another idea that seemed more um Vegasy. Okay. <laughs> So over the course of this podcast, we've both accumulated quite the collection of alcohol. Oh, yeah. I, I We could pretty much have a fully stocked bar by now. We're fixing to put some of the more obscure alcohols to use. Oh, God. I'm kind of scared. Okay, so we're going to play Shot Roulette. Shut the fuck up. Okay. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> okay, so originally every time we said casino or gambling, oh. I was going to make us play. Okay. Because I can't get that drunk because I'm ill and on medication right. and have to drive home. Yeah. Probably a good idea. I'm not going to continuously refill them. So we've got eight different liquors, oh eight different God. shots. Oh my God. And <laughs> Well, it'll be four a piece. Okay. Four a piece. Okay. I figure we could handle that maybe. Oh, definitely. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. But we're just going to have four intervals where I'm just going to be like, okay, let's take a shot. And we'll take a shot. Okay. Okay. I'm here for this. Okay. <laughs> so what do we have in your handy dandy target bag, ma'am? Okay. I, I double bagged it too. <laughs> we have... 
Amaretto. Oh, yes. Godiva chocolate liqueur. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Butterscotch schnapps. Oh, my God. I might die. Beach schnapps. Oh, my God. Okay. Spice rum, because I had two of them. Yep, yep. We getting drunk tonight. And, and fireball. fireball. Oh, God. She's trying to kill me. She's taking me down with her. That's what's happening. And originally, I wanted to use my Vegas shot glass oh, that Delena yeah. brought me back from vacation. Because I'm ill. Okay. And we can't share a shot glass. Yeah, that's true. Oh, cool. Throwaways. Eight throwaway plastic cups and a spinner out of a board game. I was wondering how we were going to choose. So we're we're not choosing. The spinner is choosing. The spinner is choosing. I love this. I'm going to fill up each glass with a liquor and put them around the spinner. (laughs) So pause for that. Pause. Can't count. I only brought six alcohol. Okay, so... Since I'm scared. Since it's some day and we've got the game set up, let's go ahead and take our first one. <laughs> do you want to spin first? Or do you want me to spin first? I'll spin. Okay. This is fun. That's the fireball. Fireball? <laughs> you got the fireball. Shit. And it's going to be white girl wasted. Woo-hoo. <laughs> Here we go. Mm. Yay! <laughs> well, <laughs> at least it was cold. <coughs> Woo! Thank you for that. What will it be? What will it be? Oh, I don't know what that is. Um, pretty sure this is the spiced rum. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Get it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yep, it's spiced rum. <laughs> that would be good for your throat. Yeah. Nice. Whew. Yeah. That's, that's, surprised you don't have vodka. And I probably, well, vodka is sacred. We're not going to play shot roulette with vodka. That's true. Okay. All right, let me get your stuff opened up. Um, while we're doing all this, go to the social so you can see the array of shots we are taking throughout the episode. Yeah. And Brittany is deciding when. <laughs> oh, shit. You're this welcome. going to be fun. And you can see all the case photos that we're going to be talking about. And participate in trivia. Oh, definite trivia. Memes and shenanigans Ooh, and what yeah, have all ya. that stuff, too. So do that. All the time. (laughs) Y'all ready to go to Vegas, baby? (coughs) Sure. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I'm ready. Let's go. Okay, so I wasn't sure what I was going to go with when we got to the topic Vegas because it's a very diverse city. Oh, yeah. there's, There's plenty to choose from. Lots of ways you could go. And mm-hmm. I decided to focus on a specific empire mm-hmm. started by Mr. Benny Benyon. Hmm. If you're from the Shreveport <laughs> Bossier area, we have one of those. You know who the Benyons are. Mm-hmm. Horseshoe Casino. Yup. So can't miss it. 
Uh-uh. It's gold. It's gold. It'll blind you when you're going over the bridge sometimes. <laughs> it's a bit flashy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is great. So during the era of lawlessness in Las Vegas, no one did it quite like Benny Binion. The king of racketeering in Dallas, Binion moved to Vegas in the 1940s and opened his own casino. Binion struck it rich the old-fashioned way in Sin City by bribing officials and using force. Because that's how you do things. Right? Yeah. Is there any other way? No. Okay. I like bribing and force. (laughs) Just making sure we got that straight here. Born Lester Binion. Oh, no. I like Benny much better. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) On November 20th, 1904, in Pilot Grove, Texas, Benny, as he was called, was exposed to the world of gambling at an early age. Raised in Pilot Grove, Benny was too sickly to attend school and never had a formal education. Why was he sick? I don't know. What? I don't know. Wow. He learned basic reading skills only after a stint in jail in his 50s. Wow. He didn't know how to read. And he admitted this in interviews and stuff that he didn't know how to read. I did not know all this. Yeah. Okay. Benny spent his childhood tagging along with his father, a horse trader, as he conducted business. Benny's education was in the world of horse trading and gambling. Benny became the trader's errand boy, serving as a runner and becoming skilled at trading horses. Yep. When they weren't doing business, the traders passed the long hours in their campgrounds playing poker and other card games. Binyam would watch the traders and would quickly pick up on the player's tricks. Cheating was a way of life for the people he surrounded himself with. And being a runner is the best way to learn all of the aspects. Uh Uh-huh. And you you figure out little details about all the people. Mm -hmm. You know things. Yeah, they usually know all the stuff. (laughs) So applying what he had learned, by 1928, at the age of 24, Binion had relocated to Dallas to work as a horse trader. There you go. So if you go to the notes and look at a picture of young Benny... This was right before he moved to Dallas. This was in 1923. Well, hot damn. I know. Get it, <laughs> Mr. Binion. Sir, the hair, the stash. The mustache. <laughs> he looks like a Marlboro man he with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. It looks like an ad. Yeah. Okay. He had established a profitable lottery and bootlegging operation. He was well known for the fierceness with which he guarded his empire. Binion learned some top tricks from Warren Diamond, the king of racketeer at the time. So apparently Warren Diamond was the big shot. The the guy. Benny was learning from him. Okay. Nice name. By the 1930s, Benny Binion was king of the Dallas Rackets under this motto. Do your enemies before they can do you. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I see you. (laughs) In Dallas, police mostly ignored small infractions like gambling, but they still raided now and then to keep gangsters on their toes. Binion protected himself from raids by hiding his crap tables in crates labeled hotel beds. (laughs) Okay, tell me more. (laughs) Binion lived and made choices with the rules of the Old West. He carried three pistols everywhere he went and gunned down at least two business rivals. He scared away many more before making his big move to Vegas. By 1946, Dallas had elected new officials with major plans to reform the city. So all the people he had in his pockets were out and a whole new regime was entering. That's some power. Yeah. All right. 
So Benny Binion had a longtime rivalry with another Dallas gangster known as Herbert the Cat Noble. <laughs> the, the nickname came from Noble's luck. He seemed to have nine lives. Oh, all right. In 1946, a rival shot him in the back. In 1948, Noble walked away from a shower of gunfire that left his car destroyed. Wow. In 1949, Noble discovered dynamite in his car before starting the engine. Oh, my God. Noble and the police suspected Binion was behind it all. Finally, a car bomb intended for Noble killed his wife. The widower blamed Binion and came up with a scheme to take him out. It's some drama, y'all. Oh, shit. Some Vegas drama. It just got real. In 1951, Noble rigged an airplane with two bombs, which he planned to drop on Binion's oh Las Vegas oh home. God. Wow. In 1951, they were doing this they shit. They playing. Okay. Just before the plane took off, police stopped Noble. In all, Noble escaped at least 11 known attempts on his life, but the cat ultimately died when a mailbox bomb blew him up in 1951. <sighs> Police suspected Binion, but could never definitely link him to the crime. He survived all that, and a mailbox is what got him. Yeah. Oh, my God. And all that can make me think of was, okay, this is, like, way off topic. But have you ever seen that movie Butterfly Effect? Yes. When the kids put the fireworks in the mailbox? Yep. I don't know why, but that's what my brain was envisioning when I was doing that part. Absolutely. Was the Butterfly Effect. Oh, Oh, Which is a Cray movie. It's so good, though. Yeah. Yeah, but it might freak you out a little bit. Yeah. It, it can. It's a little freaky. Don't don't think too much into it, guys. Uh-uh. It'll just, hurt your head. It, it, just nope, don't do just, it. Just enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Benny Binion, now 42, took the hint and cleared out, moving west. Facing possible prosecution from authorities, or worse, from rival gang members. <laughs> Binion decided to skip town. As so many of his fellow gamblers had done in the past, Binion stuffed suitcases with cash and with his wife and five children in tow, headed to Vegas. So I have a picture of the family. Yes. So in this picture, I don't know who the dude on the left is. I guess that's somebody interviewing them. But in the top middle, that's Benny and his wife. I think her name's Teddy Jane. Ooh. Um, and then there are three daughters and two sons. Oh my, they are precious family. Yes. Super cute. Wow. That's a lot of kids. That's a lot of kids. This is five kids. Five. Woo. Oy. Teddy. <laughs> and Teddy said, when I realized how good it could be up here, I said, let him have Texas. That's right, bitch. Peace mm-hmm. out, Girl Scout. Before the Vegas Strip became a major tourist attraction, Binion opened his own casino, Binion's Horseshoe. Uh At the time, the casino game in Las Vegas was run by and frequented frequented by mobsters. I'm just going to stop you. If you had made us drink every time you said casino. I know. Oh, my God. (laughs) I would have been a little more mindful of my word choice. (laughs) It's a lot. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I just noticed that. Continue. (laughs) So Binion felt right at home. Yeah. He immediately began befriending judges, police chiefs, and politicians, as one does. Right up his alley. Yeah. In 1951, Nevada Senator E.L. Norris appeared as a character witness when Binion wanted his casino license. 
Norris testified to Binion's generosity without mentioning the new Hudson Hornet Binion had gifted him. Oh. So he gifted him this nice, flashy sports car. Yeah. Hmm, It's just a gift. Binion's, yeah, just tiny, tiny little prize. (laughs) You can prize me with a car. I'm just saying. For real. Mm -hmm. It won't hurt my feelings. Mm -mm, Not one bit. Binion's horseshoe was one of the first Vegas casinos. He operated it according to two rules. The horseshoe was a place for serious gambling, and cheaters would have their arms and legs broken. So that's how they do that. Detective Frank Sutton said, The horseshoe was the only casino in town that didn't believe in calling the police. They took care of trouble their own way. I wonder if they do that here at this one. No. Uh, Maybe. I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> he killed people through others and then killed the witnesses. Because okay. that's what you got to do. <laughs> One victim was a former FBI agent, Bill Coulter, who Binion had blown up in a parking garage in 1972. Okay, I'm out. I don't want to find out. I'm not going to research uh-uh. into this. The y'all are cool. It's fine. Do what you do. It still remains an unsolved murder. Yep. <laughs> Binion, as with many of the casino owners in his time, had connections and charges were never placed against him. (laughs) So he had it going on. Everybody was in his pocket. Yeah. Unlike later casinos, the Horseshoe didn't offer entertainment or fancy decor. Hmm. The Horseshoe's no-frills restaurant served chili made from a recipe Binion had learned in a Texas prison. Okay. And slot machine. changed. (laughs) A little bit. Ours is kind of bougie. Yeah. Slot machine players got free drinks. Binion was the first to have that idea. So that's pretty cool. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Benny Binion, for that. And dealers showed up in jeans. They didn't have to wear any flashy outfits. They showed up in jeans. Okay. In the 1960s, one of the horseshoes gimmicks was to put a million dollars cash in $10,000 bills on display in a glass horseshoe shaped <laughs> case. We have that too. Well, we have a wall. Yeah, we have a wall. Ours is a wall. This was a case, a horseshoe shaped case. I got a picture of it. Oh, cool. <gasps> okay. Yeah. We have a wall. We have a whole freaking wall. Yeah. It's, it's kind of mm-hmm. cool. It's pretty neat. You're supposed to rub your hand down it. For luck and shit. Yeah. (laughs) I've never won millions. It didn't work yet. Drinking free drinks at the penny slots doesn't really help you win millions. I'm not. I'm not a gambler. I'm just. Me neither. That's why I sit at the penny slots and drink free drinks. I take 20 bucks. And once I lose that, I'm like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. I'm I'm good. Mm -hmm. Same Z's. I, I did one time. One time. Win $800 off a nickel slot. That's pretty badass. Yeah. I've never done that. It happened one time. And then my, and he gambled it back. Oi. That's sad. I was like, cash out! <laughs> this doesn't happen! Stop touching it! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tourists thronged to have their picture taken in front of the display. Because that'd be pretty badass. Uh, yeah. They came from everywhere. Binion resisted the trend of adding a hotel into a casino. Across the street, Steve Wynn planned to open a 2,000-room hotel and casino called the Golden Nugget. Hey. Binion responded, great, they can sleep in your place and gamble in mine. (laughs) Okay, sure. 
I mean, obviously that has changed since we have um, a giant ass golden hotel attached to ours. Right. But. And every room is a suite. So I've never been have to you, the room. You've never been old. Uh-huh. <gasps> we need to do that. Okay. We need to do that. So, Benny Binion. He was an unshaven, tall, robust figure with his white 10-gallon Stetson hat and cowboy-style shirts. Yeah. Benny Binion seemed made for Las Vegas's Old West theme. His shirt buttons were real gold coins, and his favorite overcoat was a buffalo hide. <laughs> I have a picture of what Mr. Benny Binion looked like in his older years, and yeah. that hat is something. Yeah, okay, this is how I've seen him. Now, I don't see any buffalo hides or gold coins. I, but I don't. There's no gold buttons right there unless, I don't know. I just thought I that's one of the only pictures he's actually smiling in. So I it's was like, you know what? Picture. We'll use that one. <laughs> but he's got the hat. Yeah, he definitely has the Stetson. Rocking it. Although federal regulations held that convicted felons were not allowed to own firearms, Binion always carried at least one pistol with him wherever he went. He kept a sawed-off shotgun in his golf cart. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. I think he should. As one does. <laughs> his office was a booth in the Horseshoes restaurant where he would conduct all business meetings with politicians, with members of the syndicate, or where he simply mingled with his guests. Just right there. Yep. Out. Yep. All right. So cool. he just did his business in a booth. Yeah. Once when he was asked what his business secret was, Binyam replied, if you want to get rich, make little people feel like big people. Good food cheap, good whiskey cheap, and a good gamble. I like That's it. That's all there is to it, son. <laughs> well, it's simple. That's what we're doing wrong. We're just. We need to make need little to people make feel little like people feel like big, big people. people. But I'm a little people. But I, yeah, I start saying, but I'm a little people too. <laughs> All I can see in my head is like the little tykes, little people, <laughs> little people. <laughs> There's a song to that. I there didn't know is. that. There's like wow. a little town. And it has a um, a road that like rotates, and when you put them all on their little pedestals, they sing together. Wow, people, lots of friends. (laughs) I I didn't know that that. you've taught me something. Yeah, that was both of my kids like one of their favorite toys. It it lasted that long. It's probably dead now. Oh my god, it's at my mom's house. Binion's straight-shooting attitude and flamboyant personality made him popular with tourists and locals alike. At Binion's Horseshoe, he set the craps limit at 10 times the maximum that the other's casinos used. The high maximum encouraged gamblers to try their luck at the Horseshoe. Binion's son, Ted, recalls that his father was going to raise the Kino limit to $500. Oh. Dave Berman said if he raised it, he'd kill him. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. To a right, <laughs> calm down, friend. To a man who'd racked up multiple murders, the threat didn't scare him much. Oh, it's true. So Fremont Street, this is the street that casinos on because it's not it's not on the Strip, it's not on the Vegas Strip, oh, okay. it's on Fremont Street. So Fremont Street housed the rowdiest casinos in Vegas. At the Horseshoe, Binion began to stake his reputation on bets of any size. Texas high rollers showed up for no limits gambling. 
One man walked in and bet $1 million, losing it all at the craps table. Oh, no. And that's like a big story among people, or was at the time, a big story among people in Vegas. It was a big deal that somebody came in and lost a $1 million in his casino in one night. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Wow. So, meanwhile, in Dallas, (laughs) the Reform Administration kept an eye out for Benny, Uh even after he moved to Vegas. Uh-oh. District Attorney Henry Wade worked with the feds to get Binion for tax evasion. Records from Binion's own safe deposit box revealed that he netted over $1 million from his Dallas rackets back in 1948. Hardly any of this amount had been reported to the IRS. Oops. Yep, they don't like that. Yeah, they frown on that just a little bit. Mm-hmm. A Texas jury convicted Binion of tax evasion. But by pulling strings, Binion got his case transferred to Nevada jurisdiction, where he walked away with probation and a small fine. An outraged Wade pushed for a harsher sentence. Yeah. In 1953, the district attorney got his wish. After teaming up with the FBI, Wade found a judge who apparently vowed, I'm going to get that SOB back to Texas. (laughs) Dignity is the last thing I do. Right? Okay. I don't know why that just popped in my head. Okay. <laughs> and you know what it made me think of? What? So you know on Beavis and Butthead, the like <laughs> Hank Hill character, that's how he talked. <laughs> Those kids whacking in his tool shit. <laughs> wow. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. That summer, Binion's chauffeur, nicknamed Gold Dollar, drove him to Dallas. Okay. Binion pleaded guilty and paid his fine on the spot in cash. He'd brought $100,000 to bribe the judge, but the FBI threatened him and scared him off. Binion later claimed that. So he used that money to pay his fine. Good good job. Yeah. From 1954 to 1957, he served time in Leavenworth Penitentiary. So I have a picture of his mugshot. Oh, my. Yeah, he didn't look happy to be there. Yeah, not at all. But not super worried about it either, so. He's got money. Yeah. It's it's fine. fine. Binion spent a total of 42 months behind bars for income tax evasion and state charges of operating an illegal policy wheel. After he was released, he returned to his casino empire in Vegas. Mm -hmm. I think we should take a shot. I was going to say, speaking of wheels. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, it's your turn. Let's start it out. I'm scared. What is this? I'm pretty sure that's amaretto. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Mm. Amaretto? <laughs> it's like cherry juice with a kick. I like that. That was good. <laughs> what you gonna get? What you gonna get? Mm-mm. That is peach schnapps. Peach schnapps. Yeah. Okay. So that means, what do we have left? Woo. Ah. Yeah. Butterscotch schnapps. And And the Godiva chocolate. chocolate. Oh, God. Okay. Woo. Okay. All right. (laughs) 
Binion never held a gambling license again after going to prison, but he remained on the casino's payroll as a consultant. Nice. His sons, Jack and Ted, and his wife, Teddy Jane, ran the casino. I have a picture of Benny with his two sons. The Binion men. The Binion men. Oh, my Lord. So there's Ted on the left. He's the youngest. Benny in the middle and Jack on the right. Yeah. We see pictures of Jack We see pictures of Jack a lot. (laughs) (laughs) He's got a steakhouse in our horseshoe. Oh, baby. It's delicious. But I'm really digging the vibes of Ted. I know. With the like, I, I, I kind of like Ted. Get it, Ted. I'm I'm feeling it. <laughs> <laughs> or they'll call. I don't know. One or the other. Fifty-fifty. <laughs> I don't know. Even in his later years, he adapted with the times as the casino industry in Vegas evolved. In the 1970s, he helped to establish the National Finals Rodeo and the World Series of Poker in Las Vegas. Mm. In Minions Casino. Anyone who could afford the $10,000 buy-in could enter the challenge. Pros flocked to the tournament along with wealthy amateurs who didn't mind losing the money. Yeah, that was big nice. grand. No big yeah. no, Nothing. Binion remained in his consultant position until he died from congestive heart failure on Christmas Day in 1989. Oh, shit. Okay. He was 85 years old. And he left quite a legacy behind. Mm-hmm. When he died, Benny Binion was worth an estimated $100 million. Oh, $100 million. million. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Although he had a controversial and sometimes violent life story, he is remembered as something of a legend in both Las Vegas and Texas. Yeah. He was a guy you could shake hands with and feel you had met a real American character, said Howard <laughs> Schwartz of Gambler's Book Club. <laughs> That was what made the place. It wasn't the classiest joint in town, but it was an authentic and unique experience. When you met Benny Minion, you felt you'd been a part of history. Oh, He does kind of seem like he has that yeah. sort of presence. Or had. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so do you want to hear some dramatic aftermath? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and this could be a whole other episode, but I've condensed it to one paragraph. Good job. Okay, all right. Good job. Following the death of Benny in 1989 and of his wife, Teddy Jane, in 1994, an all-out war erupted among the living Minion siblings for control of the horseshoe. Oh. So Benny's eldest daughter, Barbara, had died of a drug overdose in 1983. So Ooh, she died before no. both of her parents. So mm. she wasn't in the mix. Damn. Jack Minion squared off against his sisters, Brenda Michael and Becky Bennon, while little brother Lonnie Ted Binion was forced to watch from the sidelines. Damn. Ted's gambling license had been suspended for hanging out with mobsters and being arrested for drug possession. Ted. I know, Ted. Come on. Get him fucked up, Ted. Get it together. The Battle of the Binions was fought with court... (laughs) (laughs) With court bleedings and depositions instead of machine guns. But in some respects, it was dirtier and less honorable. The battle ended in the summer of 1998 when an out-of-court settlement was reached. It followed an order from the Nevada Gaming Commission that forced Ted to sell his 20% interest in the casino. Shit. Nearly all of it was bought by Becky, the youngest of Benny's kids. A month later, Ted was found dead of an overdose of heroin, a drug he had used since high school. Ew. At first, police officers thought the 55-year-old had either killed himself or accidentally overdosed, but evidence now suggests that he was the victim of his living girlfriend. Fuck that bitch. 
Ted's death was the final crushing blow to the Binion. That's sad. Y'all, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole with Ted Binion's life. That could be a whole other episode. I had to stop it. Like, yeah, with the whole girlfriend thing. And it it was insane. Jeez. But that's that's the life and times of Mr. Benny Binion. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He was toxic. (laughs) He was toxic. Well, I have another toxic person to speak of. Okay. We're going to jump on over to the Hilton. Okay. Okay. So, there's a few trigger warnings for later on. Okay. I am going to talk about the Hilton Hotel fire. Okay. It was pretty tragic. So, I don't know about this. Okay. Well, now you're going to. Okay. The Las Vegas Hilton grew into one of the most happening places in town over the course of the 1970s. The central tower of the property was the first part of the hotel to be constructed in 1969, which opened as the International, a hotel with rooms featuring themes from different countries here for all of this shit. Ownership was transferred to the Hilton in 1971, which was followed by an expansion to the hotel in 1975. With the construction of the East Tower and further addition added in 1979 with the opening of the North Tower, blah, 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 blah. There's some history. Okay. These rapid expansions led to the Hilton becoming the largest hotel in the United States by 1981, featuring over 2,700 rooms. That's too much rooms. It's a lot of cleaning. Yeah. The Hilton brought in thousands of patrons on most days with draws like a state-of-the-art sports book, as well as headliners like Elvis and Liberace. Okay. Plus, its location in close proximity to the Las Vegas Convention Center helped keep occupancy rates high at the Hilton as the city gained a reputation for hosting conventions for groups from, like, hackers to salespeople of every type. Okay. Let's go take a look of the at the Hilton, uh, what it looked like back then. You can see it in the background, and it's got the headliners, Elvis and B.B. King. Bougie. Hell yes. Okay. Yeah. I like it. It's beautiful. Between guests lounging in their rooms and patrons filling the restaurants and showrooms occupying the ground floors of the casino, around 4,000 people were packed into the bustling Hilton on the night of February 10th, 1981. A decent crowd for a Tuesday, bolstered by attendees of a savings and loan convention. Yay. Okay. It's, It's filled, okay? There's lots of people there. So Philip Klein... A 23-year-old busboy who only recently started working at the Hilton went on his break around 8 p.m. that night when he noticed a small fire in an eighth-floor elevator lobby of the East Tower. Huh. Weird. Yeah. So he rushed to a nearby courtesy phone and dialed the hotel operator to alert the security department. After he raised the alarm, the busboy hung up the phone and grabbed a nearby trash can. Klein headed to a sink in a guest room and filled the trash can with water, returning to the fire where he futilely flung the liquid at the growing inferno. Okay. <laughs> we'll where get... were all of... <laughs> okay. Look. Yep. As the suffocating smoke generated by the flames grew darker and darker and fell lower down the hallway, Klein knocked on several doors to alert guests of the threat before making his way to the stairwell. 
He exited on the second floor and burst into the room service employee area to warn everyone of the danger unfolding above, prompting his colleagues to commence their evacuation of the hotel. Such a hero. Yeah. Yay. No. Within no? 20 okay. Within 20 minutes of the first flames breaking out, the fire consumed enough furnishings and combustible material to stretch from the 8th to the 13th floor of the Hilton. Oh, my God. The raging fire cut a V-shaped gash into the facade of the Grand Hotel while spewing ceaseless volumes of smoke into the stairwells that became so thick it was barely possible for escaping guests to see their hands as they fled for safety. Oh, my gosh. Fortunately, a few guests had the foresight to hold wet towels to their face um, to blunt the choking effects of the smoke as they made their escape. I would have never thought of that. I mean, I just would have been running like a crazy I would have been person. that woman going, ah, ah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a photo. Go look at Fire 2. It shows the V shape. Okay. Yeah. Like what it did. Like that's how fast it went up right there. Okay. Crazy, huh? Yeah. That's the aftermath. Yeah. I was like, okay. It's that's, odd that that's, that's the shape that it made. Very. Guests that managed to escape by descending to the stairs and exiting the ground floors were covered in soot, with many coughing and crying uncontrollably from the blistering effects of the smoke. As for Philip Klein, he eventually made his way to the employee parking lot where he watched alongside his co-workers as the fire consumed the hotel's east tower. Go back to the photos. Okay. And the other one that says fire. Fire, fire. Fire, fire. Um, you can see all the smoke, but it's at night, so it's really kind of hard to see it. But you yeah. can see the fire going up each floor, like all yeah. the flames coming out of the windows. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's like highlighting the Hilton sign. I know. That's weird. That was not special effects or fireworks going on that night, guys. That's crazy. That was a real one. The chaos unfolding on the upper floors of the Hilton was contrasted with scenes of calm on the two ground floor levels of the establishment. Many of the guests reported never even hearing a fire alarm. It, like, damn, the whole upper thing yeah. is burning and nobody, no, everybody's just chilling That's eating crazy. at the restaurants. It fell to rank and file employees to perform the task of ensuring an orderly evacuation of the Hilton's restaurants and showrooms. Outside the Hilton developed a chaotic juxtaposition of uninjured guests in dining attire. They were intermixed with those fortunate enough to, to escape the upper floors that were dressed in black and night gowns and PJs. Some with bloodied hands from smashing the windows in their rooms. Oh my gosh. Stunned guests and employees massing outside watched in dreadful suspense as hundreds of feet above people dangled from bed sheets. <clears throat> no. Attempting to make their way from one balcony to another in an effort to evade the flames. Oh, my gosh. Pretty sad. I have a photo of the rooms. It's part of my trigger warning. Okay. It's pretty sad. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was was bad. I mean, you can see how black the beds are. Yeah. They weren't burnt, but, like, it's, it's... It was a good one. Yeah. Over 450 firefighters from 23 different stations arrived at the scene to combat the fire. Firefighters ascending the stairwells to the upper floors encountered a hellish scene describing thick plastic smoke and an intense heat as they neared the point of origin for the fire. 
Screams for help echoed from behind sealed hotel doors as first responders worked their way through the building, with the fire flaring outside of occupied rooms as it radiated outward from the elevator lobbies to the corridors of the floors on the East Tower. So that's how it traveled so fast. It went up the elevator shaft. Okay. Fire eventually engulfed much of the upper portion of the Hilton's East Tower, leading to the surreal scene of flames licking upward nearly 100 feet into the clear Vegas night sky as the iconic Hilton sign glowed in the background, just like you saw. Okay. I have to tell you. What's up? Being trapped in a fire is one of my biggest fears. Absolutely. Like, by far. I don't even want to be cremated because the thought of my body burning scares the shit out of me. Even though I know I'm going to be dead. Like, fire scares me. And there's this one episode of, I think it was Criminal Minds, where people get trapped in this movie theater. Uh Uh-huh. And there's this scene where this... Like, they're showing, like, there's no way for these people to get out. Mm-hmm. They are going to die. Mm-hmm. And this woman is, like, cradling her, like, seven, eight-year-old son. Yep. And it just, like, it makes my palms sweaty. It makes me freak out. Like, yeah. the thought of burning scares the shit out of me. Burning and drowning. Yeah, are, burning are, scares me way more than drowning. Drowning Burning scary, is painful. It's very, I mean, you're you're going to feel that. Just the thought of flames just freaks me the fuck out. Ugh. When the flames get too close to my face at the hibachi, I get freaked out. A right? Bit. It's like, oh, yeah. that's warm. Are my eyebrows? Think still about there. how bad it feels when you like burn a finger. Yeah. I mean, that's ooh. That scares the shit out of me. Fire scares the shit out of yep. me. Yep. No thanks. Let's take our last shot on that note. Okay. All right. Oh. So it's either <laughs> butterscotch or chocolate. <laughs> You get chocolate. I get chocolate. So I guess I get butterscotch. Oh, my God. I'm just going to pretend like I'm on Harry Potter and this <clears throat> is butterbeer. There you go. <laughs> and a chocolate frog. Yeah. <coughs> Ooh. Huh. That's actually pretty damn good. Ooh. That wasn't as bad as I expected it to be. It tasted like a butterscotch candy from out the bottom of your grandma's purse. Nice. <laughs> Got a little Werther's original down there. Yeah. 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 Ooh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I have to say my uh, throat feels a little bit better. <laughs> I bet it do. Ah. <sighs> It has relaxed my throat. Yeah. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> it just makes me think of the sweetest thing. Relax. Get to it. When you, you want to come. come. Stop. It's making me get hard again. <laughs> if y'all have not watched The Sweetest Thing, please do yourself a favor. I close my eyes. <laughs> do yourself a favor and go watch that movie. Definitely. Firefighters fought the fire floor by floor. And after several grueling hours, firefighting teams managed to finally extinguish the last remains of the blaze. The full scope of the carnage at the Hilton only came into view once the last flames died out. Eight guests at the hotel perished in the fire. Oh, no. The first victims of the fire were three hotel guests found in an eighth floor elevator lobby. This sucks so bad. Here's the triggers and stuff. Okay, Okay, all the triggers. At least two of the fatalities were the result of misdirection from a hotel employee. I'm not going to name him. The article does, but yeah. I'm not going to do that. 
A guest on the ninth floor asked a hotel employee where he should go to escape the smoke filling the floor. The employee initially appeared confused, but then told the guest to use the elevator to get to the ground floor. No, okay. that, no. no. When there's no. a fire, you take the stairs. Come on the stairs. So the hotel employee and two other guests crammed into an elevator and immediately realized the mistake they had made. The elevator opened on the eighth floor where they were instantly met with a thick mass of black smoke. Um, the employee threw himself to the ground where he was able to breathe fresh air, but his two companions were not so lucky, collapsing to the ground unconscious within seconds. That's how bad the oh smoke my was. Gosh. He crawled along the dark hallway until he saw a light under a door, which he entered and where he was able to safely wait out the fire until help arrived. It's fucked up. Yeah. Four other guests died on upper floors. As the fire ascended the building by leaping from elevator lobby to elevator lobby. Yeah. Yeah. Later investigations showed that each of the four guests that had died in their rooms uh, had opened the doors into their rooms, allowing suffocating smoke to billow inside. And the last fatality was a guest that tragically fell to his death just as firefighters were bringing the blaze under control. Later, the county coroner could not definitively determine whether the guest had jumped to his death or if someone had pushed him. Okay. A mystery that was never followed up on during the arson investigation, leaving open the slim possibility someone took advantage of the fire to settle a score. But I don't think that's the case. He must have like I, a shady past or something for I, them to think that. Right. That I'm sure there's a reason there wasn't more detail about that. But. Yeah. Over 300 others in the hotel, including 48 firefighters, suffered injury, largely from the smoke. More than 100 guests sustained injuries serious enough where they were admitted to local hospitals for treatment, including singer Natalie Cole, who had been scheduled to perform at the Hilton the night of the fire. Oh, my goodness. Guests at the Hilton, uninjured in the blaze, were relocated to other Vegas properties while repairs were made to the destroyed hotel. After suffering $10 million in fire damage, the Hilton reopened a few weeks after the blaze. Wow. That's pretty fast. Yeah. Baron Hilton, head of the famed hotel chain, issued a statement of condolence and promised to pay for the best medical care for any guests injured in the fire. Respectable. Mm -hmm. I like that. Perhaps this offer was an effort to stave off litigation, but nevertheless, the inevitable lawsuits against the Hilton followed. I mean, yeah, yeah. Attorneys for survivors of the blaze pointed to the hotel's failure to maintain consistent fire safety measures on the property. <laughs> Go to the elevator. Yeah. Which resulted in the company paying $16.5 million to victims of the catastrophe. So where were all the fire extinguishers? Not enough. Like, why were there no fire alarms? Why was there not a sprinkler system? Yeah. There, what are you doing? It, it, yeah. But I guess it's because of things like this, why those are law now. Exactly. Like, that's why more things got put into place. This was what, in the 70s? 81. 80. Yeah, 81. So, Philip Klein, the busboy that first spotted the fire at the Hilton, was initially hailed as a hero for his efforts to squelch the flames in their early stages and for warning guests of the danger. But within hours of the blaze being extinguished, 
Police investigators had questions about the young man's version of events leading up to the deadly conflag- <laughs> conflag- <laughs> conflagration. <laughs> I'm fine. Okay. That word, especially after arson investigator, it's the shots. Shot, uh-huh. shot, shot. I don't know. My eyes got crossed on it. Especially after arson investigators determined three other minor blazes had broken out in the Hilton near the same time as the fire on the eighth floor elevator lobby. One in a ninth floor fire hose cabinet, one on a third floor elevator lobby, and one in a second floor linen closet housing uniforms for service staff. Okay. Let's go look at Philip. Just so you can see who I'm talking about. I feel like I should be saying, fuck you, Philip. You should. Okay, fuck you, you, you Philip. You should most definitely be saying, fuck you, Philip. With your fucking baby ass mustache. Oh my God. And his like nasty. Sir, what are you Run a comb a through your hair. <laughs> run a comb through your hair. So, <laughs> this is kind of funny though. He fell into an unforeseen trap when he gave three written statements in the immediate aftermath of the fire. One to the Hilton, one to the investigators with the fire department, and one to police detectives. The first two statements were consistent, but the one to the police um, kind of piqued investigators' interests because he wrote in his statement to the police, I grabbed a trash can and filled it up with fire and I put it in and I put the couch out and then I went to get some more water. The word fire was crossed out to put the curtain out. Okay. Investigators considered this to be a Fordian slip warranting a closer look at the hero bus boy. Right. I mean, do you know how many times I misspeak? <laughs> but water and fire. But water and fire? That's kind of, um... Sir? Bro, what are you doing? <laughs> Tell me more. Okay. The day after the fire, detectives arrived at Klein's house and asked if he would mind coming down to the police station for an interview. Once at the station, Klein agreed to take a polygraph exam to clear his name, which is absolute bullshit. They don't hold yeah. up in court. Don't do it. Don't take a polygraph. Klein performed poorly on the polygraph, and after two hours of intensive questioning, detectives decided to call the suspect's bluff regarding his story telling him they knew he started the fire and the best thing for him to do was just to now come clean. Right. The young busboy crumbled. He started crying and admitted his initial story had been a lie. We know. We already knew, bruh. Klein told investigators that earlier during his shift on the night of the fire, he met a well-dressed man on the seventh floor of the hotel who introduced himself only as Joe. Hmm. The two men struck up a conversation and hit it off. The two agreed to meet each other later on the eighth floor around 7.30 p.m. Okay. Mm-hmm. A little rendezvous. What All you right. doing? All right. <laughs> later that night. Hey, I don't king shame. What, do what you do. Do what you do. Later that night, while on a break from work, Klein decided to relax on a couch located in one of the elevator lobbies on the eighth floor of the hotel. The busboy explained to the police that Joe arrived as previously planned and joined Klein on the couch. The stranger then pulled out a joint. The two passed the marijuana back and forth as they cuddled and fooled round. Okay, having a good old time. Yeah. But then Joe accidentally dropped the lit joint onto some nearby curtains 
instantly igniting a small fire. Joe bolted from the scene at the sight of the flames while Klein tried to put out the fire to alert those nearby to the danger. No, he's lying. (laughs) With that admission, Klein was placed under arrest and charged with eight counts of murder and one count of arson. But where'd the other two Mm. fires come from? He did it. Yeah, I know. He's lying. He's lying. He's such a liar. Yeah. Philip Klein's trial for murder and arson occurred over six weeks, starting in the last months of 1981. The defense's argument was that Klein had accidentally started the fire with no intent of causing harm, and the eight deaths were the result of the Hilton's failure to maintain proper fire safety measures. Klein's oh, bro, you started the fire. <laughs> Philip started the fire. <laughs> <laughs> And you said you weren't gonna sing. Well, that didn't have to be pretty. No, it that does not. <laughs> You're right about that. Klein's attorney had to hire expert witnesses familiar with fire mechanics from California and Pennsylvania because none in Las Vegas would assist in the defense. Yeah, they were like, fuck you, bro. <laughs> Klein's lawyers also argued that their client could not possibly have been in multiple places at the same time to start the four fires at the Hilton the night of February 10th. In fairness to the defense, Police in the days right after the fire confidently proclaimed they had strong suspects for a second arsonist the night of the fire, though no other suspects were ever arrested. Okay. So. He did it. He did it. I mean, he may have had accomplices, but he did the big one. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) He did the the big one. I don't. That's that's what I'm getting from it. The prosecution had a different take, however. Fire investigators attempted to replicate Klein's story under controlled conditions, but curtains of the type used in the Hilton elevator lobbies failed to ignite when a lit joint or cigarette was held to the material. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's different than just dropping it on there, going, oh, shit, and picking it up. If you hold it on there, there's more chance of it lighting. Right. So. But if you just hmm. drop it, it's not going to... Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm fucked up, Philip. Big time. Investigators determined through repeated experiments that the only way to ignite the curtains was an open flame. Video of the test played for the jury demonstrated it took only six seconds to obtain ignition of the curtains with the flame from a cigarette lighter. Okay. So that could have, even if it's a small flame, it's still an open flame. He probably just walked around flicking cigarette lighters. Seeing what caught. Yep. Pyro. Right. After the defense called only one witness, the case went to the jury. The jury quickly found Klein guilty on all counts. Several jurors were strongly persuaded by the testimony of a hotel guest that said she witnessed Klein on the phone reporting the fire before any sign of fire was present. Okay. Indicating the busboy raised the alarm before setting the curtains alight. Mm-hmm. This was strong evidence that Klein sparked the blaze in an effort to become a hero and gain a bit of stardom, as one juror later explained her understanding of the motive. Mm-hmm. The jury decided to return a sentence for Klein of life without parole. He is expected to serve out the rest of his days at the Nevada State Prison. Fuck you, Philip. Baby. The he did, end. He did that to himself. That was great. I'd never heard that. That was a great story. Yeah. I mean, it sucked, but it was It great. sucked, but I was like, 
I was like, okay, Hilton Fire. Oh wait, this dude's a hero. Oh wait, no, he's not. He's he a sucks. He's a sucky bus boy. Yeah. Bye yeah, bye, Philip. Okay, so we we got some trivia stuff going on. Oh, I have hiccups from all the alcohol. Oh no. Drink some more water. It'll be all right. Miss Bonnie Cole on Facebook. Woo-hoo. Good job, ma'am. And Miss Shannon Williams on Instagram. Woo-hoo. Good job. Uh, Shannon has 10. Bonnie has 9. Oh, ladies. It's getting up there. I think we have 6 left. Something like that. I don't know. That's a lot of math. Mm. Obviously, I can't math today. <laughs> I'm not even going to try. It's fine. <laughs> To be continued. Okay, who wants to know the answer? Yeah, yeah. What was the question and the answer? The question was, who is the Indian serial killer who murdered 13 homeless people over a six-month span? And the answer is Stone Man. (laughs) Stone Man! (laughs) Stone Man is so named because of the brutal and terrifying way he attacked and killed his victims in 1989. Stone Man found homeless people sleeping on the streets of Calcutta off by themselves and in isolated areas and killed them by bashing in their heads with a stone. Gross! There didn't appear to be any motive or pattern among the victims Except for their homelessness. That's fucked up. You suck, bruh. Yeah. Whoever you are. Stone man. Gross. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to another one. He sucks. They don't like him. Nope. I don't like any of these people this no. week. They all <laughs> suck. Like the Binion, you know, they weren't horrible. They were just, you know, your everyday mobsters. Yeah, it was like Western Sopranos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Casino. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Such a good movie. Okay, new question. Okay. What killer targeted Aboriginal children in New South Wales, Australia in the early 1990s? Ooh. Now, I know we have Australian listeners, so y'all should be in there on this. Uh-huh. What you got? So, again, the question. What killer targeted Aboriginal children in New South Wales, Australia in the early 1990s? And your time starts now. Now. Okay, so that's your question. Give us an answer. Win some shit. Yeah. We got mystery prizes. I mean, they're a mystery to y'all. They're not a mystery to us anymore. Not anymore. We got it figured out. Yeah. Getting that shit taken care of. Yeah, bro. (laughs) Okay. That's how you know I've had some shots. I think Bruh. it's time for Brittany's medicine. <laughs> I feel slightly delirious. It's okay. Though. Maybe just a little. Just a little. All just right. a little bit. <laughs> yep, it's time. Yep, it's, it's time. time to go to bed. We're going to go. All right, guys. Bye, friends. Thanks for hanging out with us. Don't forget to visit us on Facebook and Instagram for episode picks and announcements. Please rate and review on Apple, Spotify, and Facebook. We want to give a huge shout-out to Stephen Goetzke for editing, Craig Sweaver for music, and our very own Amanda Hagens for art. We'll talk at you next week.